What's going on, everyone? You're tuned into the Founder Hour podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we hear about the incredible story of Anne Byler. Anne is the founder of Auntie Anne's, a chain of pretzel shops that she founded in 1988 alongside her husband, Jonas. We spoke with Anne and heard all about her childhood and what life was like growing up in Amish culture, the series of traumatic events that led her down a dark path in her 20s, how she was able to overcome her struggles and find the light, the story of how Auntie Anne's came to be, how she scaled the company with with no prior business experience, why she ultimately decided to sell it after 18 years, and much more. We started off by hearing about Anne's early days growing up in Pennsylvania. So I grew up in uh, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, which is uh, an Amish culture. And uh, my mom and dad were horse and buggy Amish, which uh, I don't know if people in California know what that is, but uh, we're a very, um, uh, it's a very small minority group in the United States. And, um, but my mom and dad um, were old order Amish all of their lives. And when I turned three, Mom and dad left the old order Amish, and then we went to the black car Amish. So uh, I grew up in the Amish culture, even though um, going from old order to black car Amish meant that we could now have electricity and we could have a telephone and my dad could farm with the tractor instead of horses. And um, so, you know, we felt like we had arrived because we have a car now. And uh, so... My, my growing up years, there was eight of us kids, one mom and one dad, the old fashioned way. Um, I, I want to say that my life was um, safe. I felt very secure. I felt very loved, even though I love you was never said in my home. Mom and dad never told me they loved me. And I never told mom and dad I love them until uh, late in my 50s, uh, we began to talk a little more like the rest of the world does. But um, but I love you. It doesn't matter to me that I didn't hear that from my mom and dad um, because I knew I was loved. My mom and dad were always there on the farm somewhere. And I was the baker and I was the cook. And so I made lots of meals from the time I was um, as far back as I can remember, I was mom's helper in the kitchen because I had um, allergies, which I'm fighting with even at this very moment here in Texas. And uh, because of that, I stayed in the house quite a bit. And the rest of the kids were out doing the farm work, the gardening, the yard work. Um, so I learned how to um, to be a pretty good cook and how to can and how to uh, do all the things that um all the Amish people still do today. Like we would can a couple of hundred quarts of peaches and we would uh, applesauce so everything. We would do all of that in the summer and in the fall so that we'd have enough of food uh, for the winter months. And so my childhood was, there was a lot of hard work, but there was a lot of love. Mom and dad uh, were faith of people. We went to church every Sunday, no excuses ever. You were never too sick. I mean, you just went to church. And so um, the older I get, the more grateful I am for my great heritage. And obviously I'm not Amish anymore. Uh, people ask me sometimes when I go out and speak, are you still Amish? And then I just respond by saying, do I look Amish? Uh, well, there's your answer. I'm no longer Amish. 
Uh, although I have to say that little girl inside of me is still very much alive and well. <laughs> Talk to us, you know, for those who maybe kind of just know like a surface level sort of what Amish culture is. Talk to us about stuff that or something that maybe people don't know about Amish culture that kind of stood out to you, um, good or bad. I mean, however honest you want to be about just sort of your experience um, and what you think sort of happened over the years, maybe not just with you, but in with the culture in general, because obviously we've seen just different types of religions, some that have gotten perhaps stronger, some not, not as much stronger over the years as we progress, you know, as humanity for, for, for a multitude of reasons. Um, in your case though, like what, what perhaps, you know, is something that many people don't know about it. Well, you know, a lot of times when I'm, um, I love going back to, I live in Texas and I go home quite often because most of my family, there's 112 of them. Uh, my family, there's my mom and dad. And then from that, there's 112 of us. Most of them still live in Pennsylvania. So I go back quite a bit. But as I go out, I mean, as I'm speaking and I talk a little bit about the Amish culture and how I grew up, um, most, very often people will say to me, it looks like such a hard life. And I'm like, okay, guys, don't know. Amish people love life. Um, they're, I think the, their appearance and the clothing they wear, they look very stoic and very, very almost stern or, or sad almost. But when you get with Amish people, they know how to have fun more than anyone that I know. Because, number one, they have large families most of them. And uh, they learn to work together. They learn to play together. So I don't, I don't feel like anyone should feel sorry for the Amish people because they know how to make their own way in life. They do not depend on the outside world. They don't depend on the government. There is nobody in the Amish culture that I know of that would be on any kind of government assistance. They take care of each other. And I feel like that's such a it's such a strong point uh, with the Amish people. They take care of those who are needy, um, those who may be, uh, have sickness or death or things that are traumas and tragedies. They immediately, they come together and they help each other in that way. So I think that people see them as, you know, life is hard. They work so hard. But no, I'm just saying they love being, most of them love being Amish and there's only 5% of them that ever leave. And the reason Amish people don't leave the culture is because uh, there are five basic needs of every human being on planet earth. It's love. All of us want love, identity, acceptance, recognition, and security. And the Amish uh, people have a way to give one of those or all of those to their families throughout every day, throughout the week, throughout the month. But they get, there's so much security um, in, in their culture that for them to leave the Amish, it's like uh, going to a mall without any clothes on. They don't know what to do out there in that world. It's, it's very, they feel very vulnerable when they actually leave the Amish culture and go into the world. Now, some of them do that, but they always do it like I did. Um, you don't go from Amish to what they call English folks, like y'all. 
and like I am now. So you don't do that overnight. For the most part, you go from Amish, then to Black Heart Amish, and then maybe to another Mennonite, which is another, um, it's another sect of the, that culture. And then from Mennonite, maybe you'll go to a completely English church, which might be Baptist or uh, Lutheran or uh, charismatic or something like that. So they really take, um, they're very slow to like their outward appearance doesn't go away overnight. It takes time for them to look, to go from looking Amish to being English like we are. Yeah. And that's, that's a great explanation. And I think that uh, a lot of good takeaways there for people that didn't know much about the culture, or even if they did, you know, just hearing it kind of firsthand from someone who practiced that. I know you went to Amish school until you were eighth grade, you know, what was it? Eighth grade or? Eighth grade. That's correct. Yeah. Um, When you were growing up during that time and, you know, did you have any ambitions or did you have any idea of what you would want to do, you know, going into high school or anything of that nature? I know eighth grade is super young. I thought I wanted to be a doctor when I was in eighth grade, but was there any sort of ambition there? I mean, or did you think I'm going to do whatever my parents did? They're really, you know, I didn't know, I never knew about the word career, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's such a, um, I was so, I want to say satisfied. I loved my mom and dad. I loved my family. I loved helping mom in the kitchen. I loved helping dad every now and again, I would go out to the field if he needed some help, or I'd go out to the barn and milk some cows. You know, I, I loved my whole goal. My goal in life was to, to please my parents and to please God. Now, wow, that, let me tell you, that's a lifetime, right? That's a lifetime journey. But I always felt like I'm the middle of three girls and I'm third from eight children. So I'm kind of stuck in the middle. So as a very young child, uh, I know that was innate in me. I wanted to, to, to make sure that everybody in the family was happy and I wanted everybody to be at peace. Um, I'm not sure how that, you know, um, shaped me or, um, what that had to do with the way I ended up with living my life when it comes to, uh, getting married. My, my only goal in life was really to have a family like my mom and dad did. I wanted a lot of kids and my husband, he grew up Amish as well. We got married. We were, we're married almost 53 years now. That oh, makes and me. He was, he was your teenage crush, right? He was my teenage crush. Crush. You must have read my book. He was, and I dated him from the time I was sixteen, and I got married when I was nineteen and a half. And he That's was twenty-one. Uh, we grew up together. We went to in our marriage. Um, if you read my book, you know the loss of our daughter and the abuse of our pastor, who was not Amish uh, at that time. We had already left the Amish, and we were in a charismatic church. And so we lost our, our baby girl. She was 19 months old. Uh, we lost um, her on the farm. It was a very tragic accident. And uh, my sister was um, driving a bobcat. And um, we lived close to my parents. And she would drive a bobcat every morning. to. Um, uh, she would load and unload sand for my dad. And the morning that Angela was killed, uh, my sister, Fi, did not see her. And she ran over her. And she was killed instantly, which uh, changed my life. I had no idea that day how much my life would actually change. And it's been so many years ago, but every time I talk about it, it's like I'm right there again. 
and the the grief that really um, that I that I began to experience was unlike anything that I even knew existed because I had lived a pretty my life was happy and there was no trauma uh, on the farm or everything was okay and so when I experienced that I didn't know what to do with the um, grief. And five months after that, I went to see my pastor, who I thought was a good man. He was a trustworthy man, as far as we knew. And uh, But he took advantage of me that day. And um, that's when my life really took a tragic turn for the worse. And I stayed in a almost seven-year-long abusive relationship, abusive in every way, um, with this pastor. So my idyllic life and... and um, what I really wanted to become and what I really wanted was completely, my dreams were completely shattered um, during that time. And I really thought that life was over for me because I had no will, didn't have the will to live. I had, uh, we had another baby. So we ended up with two daughters and uh, Angela uh, had been gone almost seven years when I finally was able to get out of my dark space. But during that time, I really thought I would, uh, I, wanted to kill myself. I was thought about suicide a number of times, but I still wanted to be a mom. I still wanted to be married. I still wanted to be a family, but I was so broken. I didn't know, I didn't know how to get back to who I was. I'd lost me in the process. And, and, I mean, uh, it's obviously a beyond devastating, beyond tragic. I mean, it's, it's, I don't think anybody could say I can only imagine, right? I mean, you can, not, not a lot of people, if not, 99.9% of people can't truthfully say, you know, I, I know how you felt because we don't, but how, I mean, whenever it happened or however it happened, how did you see a light at the end of the tunnel? I mean, why did you see a light at the end of the tunnel? Because it, I, I really can't imagine what a be, I can't, the whole word horrible, I feel like is not strong enough, but Talk to us. I don't want. I don't want you to focus too much on the grief. But how did you get out of it? A lot of people are in your situation, or were in a similar situation, or are in a similar situation where they have dealt with depression, or despair, or grief, or you know, trouble in their lives, whether financial, emotional, relational, whatever it may be. But perhaps you can shed some light and provide some inspiration and guidance to those that might be listening now that are struggling, or that will struggle, or have struggled about how to get through it. Wow. Well, thank you, Posh, for um, that acknowledgement. Um, I know I'm not alone, but during those years, I really thought I was alone. And it, it, I love a, a quote that I heard by Dr. Richard Dobbins. Alone, we die. Connected, we live. And during those dark years, when I say that I felt alone, there's many of your listeners can relate to that 100%. Because um, when we live out this trauma and this grief, it's uh, the the pain is so um, it's you're you're completely inundated with this pain. It's like you're covered, you're draped with pain. And for me, the grief was step number one into my pain. And then it was the abuse, which took me then to pain, uh, emotional pain, blame. I blamed everybody. 
and shame. I was so ashamed of who I had become because I was really a good girl. <laughs> and my goal was, as I said earlier, I wanted to please my parents. And now I wanted to be a good wife. I wanted to please God. And so now I'm, I'm living this double life uh, that nobody, and let, let me just say, when I say nobody, my story, I don't have to embellish anything because my story in its real and raw form, it doesn't need to be embellished. So when I say that, you know, living in this place of, of shame was so unbearable um, because I knew I, I had displeased God. <laughs> I thought I had. I knew that if my husband ever found out, he would divorce me. I knew if I told anyone about it, they would misunderstand me and judge me. Um, and so I was stuck in this place where I never told anyone about anything. So nobody knew. So many of your listeners can relate to that statement, nobody knows. And what we do with that statement, nobody knows, is we cry alone. Uh, we pretend. Um, oh, we go to work and we go to church or we go to, we're, we're moms, we're, um, we're wives, we're sisters, we're friends. We go about life as if there's nothing wrong. And on the inside, we're falling apart. So today I know that I wasn't alone, but I felt alone. And so to go from that to where I'm very comfortable sharing with both of you and whoever is listening my entire story, because I know that I almost died alone. Mm -hmm. It's it's a terrible place to be. There's nothing as terrible, in my opinion, as feeling alone. Loneliness. Um, so there was three things that I did a lot during my darkness. I call it darkness of soul because there was no way out. In my opinion, there was no way out. And the three things that I did for seven years is I always say that I wept my way through to freedom. I cried every day. <laughs> I know you guys are, you know, you're not looking for all the details of this, but I feel like there's lots of. No, please do share. Cause that is uh, like you, to your point on being where you were at that time and where you are now, that is an incredible transformation that, you know, right. takes a lot of work and you have to put in, the, the effort and work, like it's not just going to come out of nowhere. And so it is really important to share, you know, what you did in your experience and whoever can relate to it. Um, I think there's something really great there. So please do, please do share. All right. Thank you, Patrick, for that. I, um, so finally the three things that I did, um, for seven years, I would get on my knees by my bed. I always call it bedside prayers. We all do that. We just pray. Uh, and the second thing that I did was I began to journal and this, it was scary as heck to journal because when I would read what I wrote, I'd be like, wow, is that really me speaking? <laughs> but all of this was like gushing out of me when I would start to write. So I realized the, the beauty and the scariness as well of journaling. And then the third piece was uh, 
I call it a new view of confession. Now, all of us know what the word confession means. It's like feels subjective, feels heavy, it feels hard, it feels like I did something bad. I got it. I don't want to tell, but I have to, right? But what I discovered um, about confession is that there's something very beautiful about that. And one day, uh, as I was on my knees, it's like God said very clearly to me, not audibly, but I felt this strong impression in my heart, simply said, get up off your knees and go tell Jonas, my husband, what's going on in your life. Wow. <laughs> so you mentioned hard work to get to go from darkness to transformation. You cannot lay in bed and you cannot just sit in your recliner hoping that things are going to get better. There is action required on our part when we find ourselves in this dark place. And the good news is there is help. There are uh, organizations today uh, where you can pick up the phone and say, I need help. And uh, I didn't have that back in the day, but this was my experience. And I, I got up off my knees and my palms sweating, my heart racing. I was scared to death because I knew if Jonas knew what, what was going on in my life, that he would actually divorce me. And in the mm -hmm. Amish culture, nobody <laughs> gets a divorce. And there's only in my whole lifetime, I know of maybe five people uh, that have actually gotten a divorce in the Amish church, but uh, they're, they're very marked. I mean, that's part of the Amish culture that I didn't right. speak about, but I, I didn't want to get a divorce. I didn't want to leave my family. I wanted to be a wife and mother anyway. So I get in my little blue pickup truck in Troop, Texas, and I drive to the body shop where my husband was working. And I made a very short and simple confession to him. And uh, that's the hardest thing that I'd ever done in my life. And I really expected him to break down and be angry and um, divorce me. But he just looked at me. And the look in his eyes let me know I, I got I can't say anymore. I had to go. I couldn't bear that look. And so I didn't hug him. There was no touch. There was no, um, I, I'm sorry, forgive, I forgive you. Nothing like that. It was just I made a two-sentence confession, and I walked away. And um, wow, that, that's the power of the new view of confession. It's really meant to, it's, it's all about authenticity. It's all about transparency. It's all about uh, connecting. It's all about uh, lightening your own load when you're carrying everything inside of you. When you begin to tell, it's like you tell the secret and suddenly it has no power over you anymore. And that's what began to happen that day. I would have had no idea then that my very simple confession that was so hard, it was humiliating. It was, I was so filled with shame and I weighed 90 pounds at that time. I was sick from head to toe. I was, my body was breaking down. But that one confession was the, it, it changed the trajectory of my entire life. And that was the day that redemption began to be a part of our family. It was a long journey. And yeah. I have a book that I wrote a year ago. It's called The Secret Lies Within. May I show it to you? This is the Please. book that I wrote. The Secret Lies Within. You can get that on Amazon.com. 
But that day, I would have had no idea that what I did was about to transform me, my family, and that six years later, Auntie Anne's would be created. Mm-hmm. And before we get into Auntie Anne's, I'm, I'm curious, you know, when, when someone is in a place of just complete darkness, um, it, you know, it's easy to just constantly be consumed in your own thoughts and draw conclusions as to what would happen if you were to confess or if you were to talk to someone about it or explain what you're going through right and until you do it and you realize all those things were just in your head and you you have no idea how it's going to turn out so i'm curious what did you learn about people just the way people operate and the way just life works from that situation um specifically great great i love that question because really when we're in that place all we believe is lies and it's all in our head I call them lies because we truly believe that nobody cares. Like nobody understands who would listen to me. And if they do know they're, they're not going to like me. If they do know that I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be marked somehow as this mom that failed miserably or this wife or this person. What I learned. Wow. (laughs) Is that when you have the courage to be real, Um, there's always someone who will believe in you. There's always someone that will walk beside you. There's always someone who will listen to you. And as you begin to open up, it's, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of courage and, and it's, it's, you, you, you tell your story or your, what you, what you're experiencing, you tell it in just small increments because you're, you're, you're looking for feedback. You're waiting to see, is somebody going to attack me? Now, I know that sometimes, depending on the family of origin and depending on your family or what your life's been like, I know that people may not respond like Jonas did, but I can tell you that there are people like him all over the world. And I believe that there are good people can be found. They can be found. Um, in your neighborhood, in your churches, in your schools. uh, There's all kinds of psychologists, psychiatrists, there's uh, lay counselors, there's people, there's all kinds of organizations. Look for someone who will care for you. And I am not kidding you. The weight of the world that I had for seven years, it's like it suddenly it was gone. So, What I know is that when we hold secrets inside of us for so long, it just gets so dark inside of us. Our our heart, our mind, our whole body is consumed with darkness. But when you just completely, when you're transparent and you tell off on yourself, your body begins to, um, um, your body begins to infuse light and truth. And I began that journey of truth and light. And I can tell you that the transformation took a while for me. But today, there is no way that I will keep any secrets. Zero. None. Because so, Anne, are you gonna share are you gonna share later on your secret recipe for how you made that pretzel? That is one secret <laughs> I'm gonna have to take to my grave, guys. All right, all right. So 
I just wanted to get that out of the way so nobody gets too excited at the end there. So, you know. You got just, me on just, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, obviously, you know, there's obviously a lot of not only truth, but a lot of power in everything you've said. And it's almost, you know, I think about the fact that, you know, all somebody needs is just one person to believe in them, right? Whether it's, you know, your partner, whether it's your business partner, whether it's your sibling, friend, whatever it is, just having the belief of one other person can help kind of spark something that's even beyond your wildest imaginations. Um, obviously for you, that was Jonas. And, you know, I was reading that, you know, it inspired Jonas to kind of go on this journey of helping others as well. And yes. as a result of that, it led you or right. And correct me if I'm wrong here, but it was a few years after you mentioned that Auntie Anne's began. Talk to us about what happened during that time. I mean, you were this girl that kind of grew up on a farm in an Amish kind of, uh, in Amish culture with not a lot of career motivation no. or not even just any career visions, right? W what happened during that time? I mean, what kind of person did you become to even be in that mindset of wanting to act and wanting to do something? Well, <laughs> The, the response that I got from Jonas that day um, completely surprised me. And yet, it shouldn't have surprised me because he's a good man. And I have never in all of our years of marriage um, has he yelled at me or uh, screamed at me or, or made me feel bad. or He never uh, um, accused me of anything. Even after that, he understood very quickly, he understood that this was sexual abuse and abuse of spiritual power. And he was so um, intrigued by, by that, like, how, how did that happen to us? I mean, we were intact. We were a happy family. There was, we, we were excited about, um, about, our family, our marriage, about God. I mean, there was nothing in our lives that could have prepared us for the evil of abuse. And so when this was brought to light, um, Jonas began to study. Um, and he's dyslexic, and he's very dyslexic, but he began to understand that he can take a word and uh and just try to understand it and, and write a whole uh, a paragraph about uh, the word abuse. Like he could take a word and uh, try to really find the definition and try to understand it. So he began to do word studies. And he got so intrigued with this subject that he ended up doing a correspondence course from uh, a counseling center called Emerge Ministries out of Akron, Ohio. And the more he studied the more he understood what happened to me and then what happened to us as a family, we became totally dysfunctional during those years. And he never understood what happened to us. So the love that he discovered with the, the subject, the counseling that he just began to, he became so passionate about it. And he realized if we can um, be um, united as family again through counseling, then maybe we can help other couples. And so he began his career of marriage counseling uh, a year or two after 
um, I had revealed this secret and we did marriage counseling out of our home, but he got so passionate about it that uh, when we, at one point then he just quit working and he was studying uh, to be a counselor and, and do marriage counseling at the same time that, and it was, he was doing counseling as a free service. So we weren't making any money. And so I said to him one day, he, he was such a, uh, he saved me. He saved my family. He saved our marriage. And I just felt so grateful and indebted. And I wanted to honor him. I told him, I want to honor you the rest of my life. So I, I'll go to work and I'll, I'll make, I'll make the, I'll make the dough for you and uh, you do counseling and I'll do business. But I knew nothing about business. We started hand to hands without formal education, without capital, without any money and without a business plan. I call Auntie Anne's a modern day business miracle. I knew nothing about business, but let me tell you, I knew what had happened in our life and I loved, loved, loved people and I wanted to help people. And little did I know that this little pretzel that was put, just put on our, it's like God gave it to us, this pretzel, and now do with it whatever you want. And this little pretzel went around the world and uh, really, um, there was so many people's lives were changed or um, financially, emotionally, and spiritually. Auntie Anne's grew into this international company. And through that, this small pretzel then became the vehicle uh, that we used to help other people in our community and around the world. It's, um, it's a crazy, amazing story. Yeah. So you come out of this whole situation and you're like, all right, I'm going to, I want to honor my husband. I want to, you know, just like go out and do something great. Right. And, and you're like, I'm going to bring in the dough. Right. I know there's a double meaning there, but how did you, how did you decide, all right, I'm going to go and I'm going to start a business first of all. And second, why pretzels? Like how did that whole idea come to you? Yeah. So I didn't even plan to start a business. I was working for someone for seven months and at this market stand, he was making pretzels and I was just managing. And you mentioned earlier about somebody believing in you. I was so broken at that time. I had no self-esteem, no self-confidence, even when I started to work for this gentleman. And he came to me and he said, Hey, Anna, I want you to manage my market stand. And I said, Oh, Dave, I don't, I started crying. I said, I can't do that. He said, Oh yes, you can. I watched you work. You have what it takes to be a manager. And I'm like, wow, I will never forget that. And he really instilled confidence in me. And so I managed his store for seven months. And somebody came to me and said, there's a store, a market stand for sale about 20 minutes from your house. Are you interested in buying it? And I said, I'm not interested. I'm doing okay here. I was making $200 a week. And I had my own minivan, which the my owner, he let us use um, for, for, for work. And I was doing pretty good. And Jonas was uh, doing free counseling. And when they asked me, they said, are you interested in doing your own store? And I'm like, no, first of all, I have no money. Uh, I'm happy here. And I'm not, I'm not planning on doing my own business. I really don't want to do that. And they, they really, they came to me three times. And it was just a young girl. And I finally said, okay, whatever. I mean, I'll call the people. So I called them about this market stand and uh, they they wanted $6,000 for this stand. And in the day, they were uh, market stands would go anywhere from 50000 to $200,000. And $6,000 felt doable. 
And my husband was in the room when I made this call and uh, I, I just mouthed to him. I said to him, $6,000. Wow, that's it. And uh, so I said something else to the people and I said, well, we'll call you back. And so I hung up the phone and I said to my husband, I really don't need to pray about this. We need to do this. And he said, you know, you're right. Let's just do it. He said, I know my dad, who is who was Amish as, as well, and they, they had plenty of money. I said, I know my dad will give us the money. So we picked up the phone within five minutes and told this couple that we want to buy their stand and we'll bring the check over uh, the next day. And we didn't even look. Oh, it was sight unseen. So uh, your listeners will understand very quickly. I knew nothing about business. We did it all the wrong way. We I mean, did you even know what you would do with this stand? Well, I knew that they were selling pizza and ice cream and soft pretzels. And the stand that I was managing was selling soft pretzels and candy. And so it was kind of a snack stand. You know, it had snack foods, snack items. And I thought, well, I can do that. I mean, they told me what they were selling. And they said, um, you know, we'll stay with you about two weeks and we'll help you uh, make the transition. And then, you know, it, you're on your own. So I went to my, my father-in-law. Uh, he gave me the check and I took it to the new owner. And then I went to um, to see what I bought, and I was pleasantly surprised. It was a big stand. It needed a lot of cleaning, and it needed a lot of tender, loving care, and it needed renovation. But my husband, mm -hmm. uh, he knew how to do all of it. So within a week, uh, we had our own market stand. And um, I didn't feel like a businesswoman at all. I just felt like I had my own business at a market stand and I was scared to death the mm -hmm. first day I walked into that because I knew nothing about business. Right. And I was doing some quick math and it sounded like you were making about $10,400 a year, right? And this is like 30 to 35 years ago, right? Is that, is that, right. is that right? right? It was 30 um, years ago. Yes. Right. So, I mean, I assume even at that time, that wasn't necessarily like a lot of money, was it? No, no, but it was enough for us. I mean, we, we learned right. to manage whatever money we made throughout our entire life. We always managed. We knew you cannot spend a dollar more than you make. That was right. our very simple concept. So we knew that with the $6,000 and we knew about how much money uh, at that time the, the owners were making uh, their total sales for two days was eight hundred dollars, seven hundred and seventy-seven dollars. Wow! What it was, and we knew we had figured out that we can mm, we can manage that. I knew that if I would tighten up, and I was always good with managing our money, even though it was a very small amount. But I knew that we could manage the finances somehow. I knew we could do that, and um, so yeah, uh, we. We believe that if we can just make enough money to pay our bills, we're, we'll be okay. And right. my husband was sure that uh, we could make money. I was more doubtful, but he was sure that we can do this well. And the first week that we had the store, we did, I think, $950. So we exceeded their sales the very first week. And then Auntie Anne's the pretzel itself, we developed over about six weeks. And when Auntie Anne's recipe was formed, immediately, uh, my husband and I, that's a whole story in itself, but when we, that was a mistake. But when we made the shift, when we made the changes in the, in the uh, um, recipe, 
the very first batch that we made after we changed the recipe, we began to bake the pretzels. And it was just my husband and I at the store that morning. I'll never forget it. And we began to smell the pretzels. We kept opening the oven door. And when they were fully baked, he and I stood there and we ate one pretzel together. And we're like, wow, this is unbelievable. And we had a pretzel recipe, but we didn't like it. It was terrible. But we went from terrible to unbelievable. And so my so I was so excited about this. And so my husband said, don't say anything to anyone. We'll see what the customers say. The very first customer that came to us that morning, he bought a pretzel. And we're like all excited and hoping that he notices. And he bought the pretzel, walked about 10 feet away from the store, stopped, took another bite of the pretzel, turned and looked around back at, he turned and looked at the store and he came back to us. And he said, wow what is this? And I said, it's a soft pretzel. And he said, wow, this is better than anything that I have ever had. That was our very first response. So we knew then that we had an amazing pretzel, but we didn't even have a name for it until about two weeks later, we came up with Auntie Anne's soft pretzels. Where did that name come from? My name is Anne and I have 30 yep. nieces and nephews and they all called me Auntie Anne. And, they, and my friend said, well, everybody calls you Auntie Anne. Why don't you just name your store Auntie Anne's Pretzels? And that's where it came from. <laughs> so obviously, you know, you, you know how to make pretzels, which is step one. I mean, if yes. you're in a business or you're starting a business, step one is knowing how to make something or knowing how to sell something. You got to know something, right? Like there's one thing you got to at least be good at. If you're not good at the product, you got to be good at the sales. If you're not good at sales, yeah. you have to be good at marketing. If you're not good at marketing, you need to know how to crunch numbers, right? You got to be good at one thing. That's and obviously, right. you know, you were good at that one thing. You know, I'm sure that there's thousands of stories you could tell over the years, but, you know, talk to us about the earlier days once Auntie Anne was just, was besides just you and Jonas and a couple others. I mean, how did it begin to grow? What were some of the things that you guys did from going to market stand to beyond? Wow. <laughs> um, you know, I was comfortable at that market stand because as a kid, my parents went to farmer's markets in Philadelphia. So in that setting, I was very comfortable. So my dad, he was very, uh, gregarious and he was very outgoing and he loved people and so in my early as a kid I would watch my dad interact with people in Philadelphia at a farmer's market and I would always be amazed at how he just there was he, nobody was ever a stranger to him so he was able to in a way he showed me a customer service which I didn't know what it was back in the day but so I took that with me into my farmer's market. So I did have a sense about um, how to treat customers, but certainly not on a professional level. Nobody had trained me, but the key for me was I loved people. And what the second part, what I, what I knew was that immediately, I knew that we had a great product. And so if you have a great product and you know it, you, there's something about that, the passion about that. It's kind of like supersedes everything. And for me, the, it was the, the number one thing we had was the purpose to help people through counseling. 
And number two, I discovered we had a great product. And then number three, we had great people. And I knew what our purpose was. I knew we had a great product. And then I began to understand that I needed to, um, the, the people that I hired, I needed them to understand what it was that was important to me. And so in my early years, I mean, I was still, I was working in the markets. I had, we opened two stores the first year. And during those, uh, w- during that one year, I was always in the store and I was training my people as I was doing. It was like show and tell. As I'm rolling pretzels, I would train. As I'm doing customer service, I would show them how to take care of customers. So for one year, I really instilled that in the people that we hired. And then the next year, we did 12 stores. Wow. Um, I couldn't be in all of those stores. So I began to understand that this is really not a mom and pop anymore. It's not like about me being in the store and training everybody. Now I need to bring people in that know more than I do. So I instinctively, I knew that I needed people uh, with experience. And so I hired someone to be my business manager. I hired a, a VP of finance. Uh, 19. This was in 1989. Then in 1990, I hired a VP of franchising. And so I began to bring people from the outside in that had experience in the world of franchising. And I knew what I didn't know. <laughs> I knew I needed people that knew more than I did. And I'm forever grateful that I saw that early on. And these people that I brought in were just, uh, they were experts in the field and really took us from one small little farmer's market to two that Jonas and I did. And then we did 10 more, he and I. But from that point on, from 1990 on, uh, we just began to hire people that um, that were experts in, in business. And uh, I began to go to conferences and I began to read books about leadership. I thought it was all about pretzels, but then I realized it's not about the product. It's all about people. And what I discovered that if you understand that it's all about people and you treat your people well, at the end of the day, they will do, they will work for you. They will serve you. They will fulfill the, the, they'll care about, if you care about them, they will care about your product and your purpose. So there's so many things that I learned. And in a few years, I went from knowing nothing to being very comfortable in my own skin as a businesswoman, as, and as someone that was in a career that I, that I had no, I, I had no idea that's what I would do one day but it really grew me up. I'd say that Auntie Anne's grew me both up uh, emotionally, spiritually, financially, professionally, and personally. So without Auntie Anne's, I would not be the person I am today. And I'm just so amazed at how fast everything happened, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you start off with, you know, buying this stand for $6,000 out of nowhere, right? Um, that happened. Well, not out of nowhere, but, you know, let's call it, you know, luck meets opportunity. Um, you buy it and then you basically make a better pretzel that I agree is unbelievable. Um, I haven't had it since 2019, I would say just because the malls were kind of closed in 2020. Um, but still unbelievable. Um, and then you just within a year start growing the team and franchising. I mean, what happened in that year? Like that's a, that's an unbelievable story in itself. Like as a business story, you don't see that, especially in a, service-based or food-based business people don't scale that quickly 
right? Even with the current age of social media, things don't spread that fast, you know? So how did that happen? I mean, what, what lessons can one take away from that and apply it to their business today? Well, one thing that I took with me from the farm to the workplace, my dad instilled in me that working hard is, is okay. He made me believe that working is fun. And so I took that mindset into the workplace. There are no shortcuts to true success. Um, I mean to tell you for 24-7, I, I, was, um, I was completely immersed in Auntie Anne's. I was a wife and a mom, and, and uh, we went from doing uh, dinner every night around our dinner table to within about eight months, we no longer sat around the table as a family. And that was hard for me to, I couldn't, I could hardly bear that, but there was a lot of sacrifice along the way. But there, there are no shortcuts to success. And I still believe, I heard the phrase oh, later in, as the company grew, people would tell me to work smarter, work smarter. Oh, okay. I, I didn't know what that meant. So the point about working hard was I did whatever it took uh, to, to make it work. And everybody that came, that, that began working for me had the same mindset. They would do whatever it took. We were a real team building this company. Um, and the, the other thing that I knew in, as well early on was that I had so much to overcome. Again, I had no former education, formal education. I didn't have the books to, you know, the book knowledge about business, but I had the hard work ethic. I didn't know anything about uh, how, to, how to start or to manage or to grow a company. I didn't know anything about that, but I knew how to work hard and I knew I could do whatever it takes to, I could do that. And so I began training people. I began, I traveled all over the country and I would visit because people were important to me. I was traveling probably two weeks out of the month uh, because I would go to every store that was open because I wanted people to know that they were important to me. I don't, I think we underestimate uh, the power of your people. Uh, I believe that if people understand that you care about them, they will care about what you're doing. Uh, there's a whole lot said about that people are your greatest asset. And yet um, we don't treat our people like they're really our greatest asset. We, uh, if they're our greatest asset, then it takes time and money and effort uh, to put into your people. So I knew right. that I needed to uh, grow our people as well as grow myself. So it was a, it was nonstop. And uh, I learned as I went and other people came on board and taught me what they knew. And um, within, within six years of starting Antiens, we went halfway around the world to open up a franchise in Jakarta, Indonesia. And I can't even explain to you how that happened. I mean, I can tell you how, but it doesn't. It's too much to tell. Yeah. <laughs> and, and obviously, you know, 33 or so years later, um, you know, I think I read there are about 1,500 locations. Almost, uh, yes, uh, 2,000. Almost 2,000 worldwide. And you talk about 
you know, you working hard, working smart, investing in people. But the truth is, you know, a lot of times you could do all those things and you still won't be able to reach not just like a massive level of success, but, you know, a business that has the longevity that Auntie Anne's has had. And, you know, still after all this time, it's, you know, just, you know, pretty much at every mall, if you go to a mall, especially here in LA, I don't think that, you know, I've, I've ever not seen one at a mall. And so I'm curious, you know, besides those things, is there anything else that you can perhaps point to or think about as to how or why the business has just done so well for so many years and is, is still, you know, doing well? It's because, you know, especially in the food business, you just see so many businesses come and go um, where, I, I don't know if there's anything else out of those things that you can... Well, well, being in the food business is really hard work, and it does take a lot of skill uh, to, to to get one store up and running and to keep it going. You know, I that's true. Um, but you know, I feel like a lot of people um, they they have a great idea. Uh, they want they 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 want to franchise. They want to build a company, and then and then the fear factor sets in, you know, they, they, they're, they're afraid that they can't do it. They don't have the skills or they don't, they don't know how, or, you know, fear debil- is, is very debilitating. It will stop you. you. If you freeze in your fear, you will never uh, uh, accomplish what it is that your, your dream, you will never accomplish your dream. Fear is, is, is uh, it's, it, it just, it kills you. I mean, there's no, you don't move forward when you're engulfed in fear. So, and I experienced that a whole often in in my uh, in my journey of building the company. There were many things that I was afraid about, and uh, but what I did instead of just just uh, allowing fear to overtake me was instead of becoming paralyzed with fear, I would face my fear, talk about it, not act like I don't have any trouble or never. I always ask questions, and I would tell people what's going on in my life, and I would talk about what I'm afraid of. And together we would conquer that fear. So I feel like that in the in the workplace as a leader or as an owner of a company, people are drawn to you if you're open and honest and transparent and if you're a person of integrity. And even though I didn't do everything right, uh, like how could I do things right? I really wanted to do uh, be a person of integrity, which means... In, in this very simplest form is you just do everything right. I mean, you do what's right. Now, you can't be perfect at that, but I was very uh, aware that I wanted to do what's right by my employees and in the world of business. And so people are drawn to people of integrity, people that are uh, open and honest and transparent. And I have people come to me from all over the country because Auntie Anne's had a reputation uh, of integrity. And uh, as, as the company grew, the management team got together and one of my, one of my uh, our statement of purpose became being a light. Uh, I wanted to be light in the world of business because after I started Hintians, I began to see, wow, oh, okay, oh, that's how you do business, but it didn't feel right to me. Oh, that's what you do when you're in corporate America. But it didn't it it didn't set well with me because my mom and dad always said you do what's right, you be honest, you be open, you be truthful. Uh, I mean, if you have to, you can shake on a deal, shake your hand on a deal. I mean, that that's just kind of the way I grew up. And when I realized 
there's all these other factors that uh, make business com complex and uh, there's, there's really no trust. Um, you're not as good as your word. Um, uh, you can tell stories and maybe, maybe you can actually lie to your, you know, um, to your vendors or your employees about things. And one thing that I, I was very open and honest about with my employees, and we talked about this at every all-employee meeting, was the power of truth and integrity. And that's who we are. And I just, I just feel like uh, as, as we got this reputation of we're a company of integrity, people were drawn to that. And we got the best people in the industry uh, to come and work for us. And we didn't even put it, we didn't even, uh, many people came without even knowing that we were hiring. They would just call us and say, hey, we heard about your company. Uh, do you need uh, VP of uh, franchising or whatever it might have been at the time. And that's how we hired people. We, we, um, we had a reputation. So I feel like any company uh, with a good reputation and your, and your foundation is trust um, is so important. If, if, if you don't build your company on trust, then you really don't have a foundation and it's going to disappear uh, very quickly because foundation is the trust to any relationship, to a marriage, to any business. And we built on trust. And as the company grew, we took the word light and we did an acronym, L, lead by example. Uh, I, invest in employees. G, give freely. H, honor God. And T, treat all business contacts with respect. And that became our statement of purpose. And uh, we talked about that in every meeting that we had at Auntie Anne's. had a business card back in the day. We had business cards. <laughs> and that was on all of our business cards. And I just feel like uh, your reputation really is what builds your company. And you were so focused all those years on, you know, bringing in the right people and being a leader and, you know, treating people with respect and kind of setting these goals and this purpose for the company. Were you at all focused on yourself and taking care of yourself and bettering yourself? And, you know, I think that's a problem that all founders have, all leaders have is they focus a lot on give, 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 but then they forget that the person that's giving needs to also be fed to be able to continue giving to other people, right? Um, talk to us a little bit about that. Well, there's a line that I love, which is one that I just uh, came up with uh, over the course of time is uh, overcoming yourself. To overcome adversity, one must overcome themselves. And I had so much adversity, so much that I had to overcome. So there was a lot of I spent a lot of time focusing on myself because I wanted to become the best that I could possibly be. And in the middle of, uh, of Auntie Anne's, right at the peak of its growth in 1994, 95, um, I crashed and burned. And there was a whole story behind that. But at that point, I had focused um, so much on um, serving my company well and at the same time, focusing on all the obstacles that I had to overcome. And when we had a personal 
a family issue that came up that just devastated me at that time. I wanted to walk away and I told someone that I, I don't, I don't need, I don't care about Auntie Anne's. I don't care about my family. I don't care about the money. If I don't walk away, if I don't have a penny to my name, I cannot bear the burden of all of this anymore. But somehow I stayed with the company because I understood this was one more obstacle that I had to overcome. And it was really the obstacles most times were within me. And that's when I went for outside help. That's when I went for counseling. And that's why I went for psychiatric help. So while it's important to focus on your employees and, and we knew that Auntie Anne's was created to give, that was, that was a well-oiled machine. That was being done. But in the meantime, uh, there was still a lot of issues within that were just really keeping me from overcoming some of those obstacles. And I realized at that point, I need help. So as a leader and as someone that owns maybe even a very successful, a growing company, there are times when you need to take a sabbatical. You got to stop. Just just go away for a while. Make sure you, you have a great team in place, which I did. I told them what I'm doing. I needed to go away for a while. I needed to take a sabbatical so that I could come back stronger. And that's exactly what happened to me. I was able to get enough of help to where uh, interpersonally I grew and I was able to overcome so many of the obstacles within myself. And that's why I wrote the book that's coming out in about two or three weeks, Overcome and Lead. I overcame as I was leading. I didn't wait to become a leader till I had overcome all of me. But you can actually overcome as you lead, but you have to be in tune with who you are and you must be in tune with what your people need at the same time. And I was able to somehow, I don't know, I was able to do that um, from the time we started with one store until we sold the company, we had about 900 locations. And let me tell you, it was a roller coaster of a ride. It was up and down. But Auntie Anne's was truly successful uh, in, in every way. It was not perfect. It's not even possible to have a perfect company. But I do believe that we did what we did with excellence and with integrity. And that simply meant if we had to back up and start again, if I had to admit I did wrong, if I had to say I'm sorry and be open and transparent about all of those things, that's how we grew into Ian's. What made you decide that it was time to sell this business? <laughs> I was wore out. <laughs> We'd been in the pretzel business about 18 years. And honestly, again, my gut feeling, and as I talked to my husband, as we prayed about this for two years, we really felt like we had taken the company as far as we could uh, without um, just completely wearing ourselves out. And we knew that there was more, but we didn't know, we didn't feel like we could take it to the next level. And so we just felt like the wisest thing to do would be to sell it uh, to someone that we knew was capable. And we sold it to my second cousin who was in the company uh, almost uh, almost a full 18 years that we'd owned the company. He was from my culture. He's my second cousin, and he was interested in buying the company. I felt very, very comfortable with him. 
at the helm. So he and the banks uh, bought the company and continued to stay a private company, a privately held company. Um, so you have to know, I, I love to, what's true is that uh, there's a beginning to your success, but there's also an end to your success. That doesn't mean that you're finished. It just means that you're, that season in your life, the anti-end season for me, there was a very, very distinct beginning and there was a very distinct ending. And after we sold Auntie Anne's, I was then free to uh, use my story to share uh, to share my story like I'm doing today. And I always say that God gave me a pretzel first and then he gave me a platform. We felt like there was something bigger than owning and uh, managing a company, which was so intense by the time we sold. Uh, we just felt like it was time. And I think that was around 2010, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, five. Um, oh, that was oh, five. And then I think it got it got reacquired or it got acquired by a private equity firm in 2010, right? That was after he had sold it. Yeah, 11. To 2011, it was bought yeah. by, uh, by, yes, a firm out of Atlanta, oh, Georgia. Right. So I guess, so that's, you know, was 16 years ago, you sold the company 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned you've written books, but what else have you sort of been working on? in that time and uh what are you sort of you know looking forward to 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 continuously accomplishing uh from this point on well i enjoy speaking and my my passion really is because of my own experience as a, a losing our daughter and then going back to the real uh dark years of our life that that has so impacted me uh that i i feel very passionate about uh, doing uh i call i have a um uh we wrote up a um uh, stories times eight curriculum for women to be able to share their stories in small groups of eight. I'm very passionate about doing that. I'm also, uh, I love doing women's conferences. The other side of me is I enjoy going into uh, colleges or uh, corporate uh, settings and share my story about hands And I always talk about the power of purpose. So I'm, I'm kind of on two tracks. I, I I'm very passionate about women and uh, the needs that we find ourselves in uh, because of uh, trauma and uh, tragedy that we experience as families. So that's really my love. Uh, but the other track is I love sharing our story about Auntie Anne's because I know that there's so many people, uh, particularly in these uh, COVID days, uh, hopefully, you know, we're through the worst of that. And so much has happened that has devastated people. And I, my heart breaks for the people that have lost their uh, their business, particularly the mom and pops that uh, I, I can relate to that because we were a mom and pop and I understand you put all of your effort, all of your money, all of it into one basket and you hope and pray it survives. And COVID has been uh, relentless and heartbreaking for many people. And so I also believe um, that there's, I, I'm, I'm an eternal uh, optimist. <laughs> I just believe there's more. There's always more. And there is a way where there seems to be no way. And I've lived that life as well. So I want to encourage people that, you know, don't let your dream die. Even if your business is shut down, uh, find the courage to, to stand up again, to stand tall and, and do it again. And I keep hearing stories about people that just, they have lost everything. And I, so how do you start over? I don't have the answer, but I just, I can say when you've lost it all, which I did at one point, 
there's more inside of you. Don't look to everyone else, but find the courage within yourself to be strong and courageous and try again because you never know what's on the other side of that. And I will say that, you know, a big part of my childhood, I remember, uh, you know, you as, as a boy or girl or whatever, but in my case as a boy, you'd always get dragged to the mall, right? Like with your mom. Um, and we wanted to go to all the, right. Yeah, exactly. And you go to all these stores that you don't want to go to. You go to all these sections and you, the whole time you try to avoid those things. But, you know, Auntie Anne's brought me a lot of joy as a kid because it was the only thing I would look forward to if I had to go to the mall. Because you not only you could smell it from a mile away, but also it was that like, hey, nurse, just you know, keep calm for another thirty minutes. We'll get you a pretzel after. You know, like I'm a big, big kid. You got, you got to have a pretzel. So you know, it's, I just love the fact that you know you associate something and you associate food in this case with a feeling, not only something that you can reminisce on years later, but in that moment, br- bringing people that joy. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a pretzel, right? Yeah. I'm not trying to undermine the business, but I mean, that's, it's a pretzel or it's a shirt. Like none of these things are absolutely special, but the emotion that they, you know, cause or the, the, the reaction that they get out of people is really what makes it worthwhile, you know, and speaking of parents or speaking of moms in this case, but speaking of parents, did your parents live to see you starting Auntie Anne's? Oh, Wow. No, my dad died very young. He was 63, but my mom, she lived to be 92, and she was there mm. from the very beginning to the very ending of, of my tenure at Auntie Anne's. And, oh, my, she was so very proud. She was so proud of, of uh, what we were able to accomplish, and I would take her with me to store visits. And she was still a little Mennonite lady that uh, you know was very plain still. And uh, she went with me everywhere I went for a number of years. I would take her along and cause she loved to be with the people and she loved being with me. And so we did a lot of traveling together. And you know what you said about loving the pretzel. And like, if you were a good boy, like if you were shopping, mom said in 30 minutes, I'll go get you a pretzel. If you're really good. Do you know that the word a pretzel comes from a Latin word meaning as a pretiola, And it actually means a little reward. So, Auntie Anne's there you go. Has, a, has a very significant uh, history. Uh, the monks back in 610 AD uh, would, at, at the monasteries, as they would teach their kids how to pray. And if they learned their prayers correctly, they would take leftover bread dough and roll it out and then fold it with, and uh, twist it to, to make it look like folded arms in prayer. And ah, so, I thought it was going to be more like a like a present, but that that makes sense. It was a little reward, yeah. and the holes represented Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, pretzel is truly a little reward. Now we had no idea about the history of the pretzel until we were in business about a year, and <laughs> so they told us about it. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> so that is amazing. Wow. End, Auntie Anne's was truly uh, create. It, it was a, a miraculous. Uh, journey for us. And we believe that God created Auntie Anne's as uh, it's a miraculous uh, 21st century miracle. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) the one thing I love is that, you know, even to this day, I I remember the way this even came about, by the way, is I'm not even sure, you know, but I was just sitting around with my wife and mother-in-law and I think we were just craving pretzels. And (laughs) I think my wife looked up Auntie Anne's 
And she's like, you guys got to interview Auntie Anne. And that's why we're here. So, wow. I mean, to this day, I mean, the pretzel and you are synonymous. Yeah, <coughs> you're right. You're awesome. right. Yeah, it's funny, though, because most people know about the pretzels because one day it, it was not a household name at all. But today, right. I mean, it's, it's pretty much a household name. Uh, everybody knows about the pretzel, but the people don't know there is a real Auntie Anne. They really don't. Right. They're learning about me, but I, I, I guess I don't really care. I would rather that people know about the pretzel because that's my passion. <laughs> right. That's amazing. Well, and this has been such a fun conversation. I mean, there's so much, so much to unpack here and so much, I mean, your, your story is truly incredible. I mean, I think it's amazing that you're, you know, sharing it through speaking or through the book or even on this podcast. And we can't thank you enough for being here and um, sharing it with us and our, our audience. So, uh, we, you know, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. You're, you're welcome. It's my great pleasure. And I, it's an honor to me that y'all would uh, pick up the phone and say, Hey, can we do an interview? I'm so happy to uh -huh. do <laughs> all right, thank you well, all the best to you thank you so much thank you all and have a wonderful day